take a look at healthcare, we take a look at education. What's lacking there is exactly accountability, reciprocity, and knowledge. Reframe the question. If you ask the question more or less government, there's going to be sort of that sort of knee-jerk response because people have this image of all the imaginary good things they have. But if you ask this a different question, is there a better solution? And how can you discover that better solution or trusting the idea of individual liberties, the fact that bad things have happened to them in life? The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 43. Hello and welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello folks, Dan Reed here with the Culinary Libertarian. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Uh, A few things first before we get started. Head over to my podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, and there you can join my Eating Liberty Facebook group, where I chat with some of the folks in there, and we talk food policy issues, or bread baking issues, or just share some fun recipes and banter. Uh, You can also follow me on social media through Twitter, Minds, Gab, Bitbacker.io, and also subscribe to my YouTube channel. You can support the show in several ways. One of them is with donations at Patreon, Bitcoin, or PayPal, and all of those tabs are on the podcasts page. You can also make a purchase of a coffee mug through my Cranky Without a Coffee website, linked on the podcast page. You can also show your support with a click of the mouse and a few words by giving me a five-star rating on your favorite podcatcher and writing a positive review. Those actions help move the show up and get more people listening. Also, share the shows on social media, on your pages, and tag your friends. How is your summer reading going? Yours and the kids. Author and parent Connor Boyack has written or rewritten some of the great libertarian books into easy to read and comprehend books suitable for both kids and parents. The Tuttle Twins series covers topics such as Can Children Be Entrepreneurs? Does the Golden Rule Work? What are individual rights? What is protectionism, and why is socialism harmful? Each book is illustrated, and each is from a classic book such as Bastiat's The Law, Rand's Atlas Shrugged, or Griffin's The Creature from Jekyll Island. Click over to culinarylibertarian.com slash Twins. That's culinarylibertarian.com slash T-U-T-T-L-E-T-W-I-N-S or click the banner on the show notes page. My guest today is Alex Merced. Alex is the vice chair of the Libertarian National Committee. Alex has spent time as a seasteading ambassador and has been active in New York City politics, running against Chuck Schumer and also for the New York City Controller. Alex has a strong online presence with several podcasts, a YouTube channel with dozens of videos, and various social media accounts. 
I'm speaking to Alex about some libertarian 101 kind of things, getting a bit away from punditry, and focusing more on how the daily interactions of people can start them onto the road to liberty. Welcome, Alex. Thank you for being on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast today. Hey, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. Well, I'm glad it's a pleasure. I'm happy to have you on. I,、uh, we're going to get into a little bit of、uh, your background first. I just wanted to say that、uh, I, I found you on actually a link you sent through Facebook to、uh, see your new page and your YouTube channels. I was like, wow, this is this is great stuff. So we're going to talk a little bit about that.、Uh, before we get into all that, just a little bit about your background. Who is Alex Merced? Okay, I'll start at the end and then work back to the beginning. But basically. Right now, I'm the current sitting vice chair of the, of the National Libertarian Party. But how did I get to this point? Started back in 2007, 2008. I was a Ron Paul convert. The, the Ron Paul Giuliani moment was sort of that that trigger that got me thinking about libertarian ideas. But then what happened afterwards? That those first few years, 2008, 2009, 2010,、um, I was just got really into the ideas of like Austrian economics and and libertarian philosophy. So I spent several years just studying, just literally. Uh, consuming the literature, consuming the tradition, and while I did that, one of the best things I've learned, far as how to learn something, is to teach it. So as I would learn things, I would create videos on YouTube where I just kind of discuss what I got out of different things I listened to, different things I read, and to the point where it became thousands and thousands of videos、uh, over there on YouTube, and a lot of people ended up following those videos and enjoying them. So that that resulted in 2013,、uh, someone. Who enjoyed my videos, recruiting me to run for New York City Public Advocate with the Libertarian Party.、Uh, after that race, I got to know the people in the party and kind of fell in love with the community and the camaraderie, and kind of stuck around to the point that now I'm、uh, the, the national vice chair. So,、um, libert- libertarianism is certainly a, a deep, deep passion of mine. Or just the idea of a more free world and a world that works better and happier people and freer people and more prosperous people. Um, and uh, luckily, people have appreciated me on that mission and appreciated what I put out there, and、uh, I continue to put more stuff out there. All right. Well, you've sort of answered the next question, which was about your journey into liberty, and but that's that's good.、Mm-hmm. Let's start with just like the basics of libertarianism, and we've probably all read the mug or the T-shirt with the catchy phrase "Don't hurt people and don't tape the stuff." And I think at that spot, nearly everybody is in agreement. But when we start to apply, what does it mean to hurt people or to take the stuff? Then we start seeing some resistance. So, how how does it apply to something like a forced minimum wage or farm subsidies? Got it. Okay. So when you're talking about farm subsidies, and I. I'll get, actually, I'm gonna wait for a second because there's sirens in the background. That's one of the、yes. fun sides of living in Brooklyn that there's always a siren every few minutes.、Um, hey, I remember. <laughs> okay, so regarding、um, a minimum wage, where the where this whole idea of non-aggression applies. So again, basically, libertarianism is based around two basic ideas: self ownership that we all of us own ourselves, and because all of us own ourselves, no one has the right to damage the property of another. Like because my life is mine, I can. Take my own life, but you can't take my life because、uh, you don't have any claim over it. So, with a minimum wage, when you have a government sort of impose kind of any policy, it, it violates that sort of principle in two different ways. One, from the actual 
the government has to actually enforce these rules, which means you actually have to fund that enforcement, you have to fund the pay for police officers, the pay for a legal system, the pay for all these things. And that generally comes from taxation, which is sort of theft. You know, taxation is theft in the sense that it's compelled, uh, with, typically without consent. So there's some people who can maybe passively say, yeah, no, I'm okay with my taxes going to the roads. But the vast majority of people never explicitly or even implicitly uh, consented to it. Uh, so in that case, you are violating that level of the non-aggression principle of that property right. But also on top of it, in that enforcement, let's say I'm enforcing the minimum wage, I'm interfering in a person's business and saying, okay, hey, you person who wants to work, you person who owns this business, I'm basically going to tell you how you can use your property, you being your labor and you being your business. I'm controlling the arrangements you can. So you're violating their self-ownership. You are aggressing on their property. So you're essentially, through most government policies, you are violating that principle of self-ownership on two different ends. On one, having to fund the apparatus to do the violation, uh, which is a violation in itself. And then also in the actual carrying out of those orders where you're controlling people and their property uh, to achieve whatever some, you know, some bureaucrats, some busybodies desire or end to create this imaginary world they think can exist. Keeping with my focus on sort of a libertarianism 101, libertarianism, libertarian, (laughs) easy for me to say, libertarians will recognize that already we're in a field full of rabbit holes. And I want to steer clear of punditry and focus really on what libertarianism is as it is practiced every day. How do people seem to get it so wrong, which I think they call it Republican light, and how can people advance liberty without getting down into the muck? Now, when I say like libertarianism in action, when I think of libertarianism, a lot of people get confused and they think that libertarianism is about being against government, but it's more about being for individual liberty um, and for basically for self-ownership and uh, for self-ownership. And there's a huge difference there because if your emphasis is on making sure that people have the ability to do things, it's a, it's a totally different message when I'm saying, hey, I just want to just be, be a downer on government because you're not emphasizing the why. Uh, so far as messaging goes, the, the focus should always be that we're trying, we, we want people to be able to have more freedom in life, have more autonomy, have more of that self-ownership that we believe people naturally have because, for, because when people's arrangements socially and economically are based in consent, in I choose um, and I consent to every arrangement I have with others, there's three beautiful things that come out of that. Um, reciprocity. If because I consent to be in any re- uh, social relationship or economic relationship, I have an incentive to meet my end of the bargain and do it well because I want there to be repeat transactions, whether it's a person continuing to be in a relationship, a romantic relationship with me, or with someone continuing to do repeat business with me. Either way, I want to make sure that they're happy so they continue to do that. And same thing for them, because both of us are consenting to be in this. We don't want to lose that. So you have reciprocity. Two, you have accountability. Either one of us, if we're not happy with how the other person is meeting their end of the bargain, we can walk away because it's consensual. And three, knowledge. When I discover a consensual arrangement that that works, we've just learned, hey, this works. And that's something that's going to inform our future decision-making, which is going to result in us making more better decisions more of the time down the road. So basically allowing people to have more consent in more areas of their life allows there to be more accountability, reciprocity, and knowledge. So why wouldn't we want that in as many realms? So there's so bottom line is 
yes, we believe that people own themselves, but there is a, a benefit to that. There is something that benefits society from that, and that is the accountability, the reciprocity, the knowledge that comes from that, which trickles into all society. And when you erode that accountability, when you, uh, when you erode that consent from things and say, hey, you don't get to make a choice here, you don't get to make a choice there, you, you actually eliminate those things. I mean, we take a look at healthcare, we take a look at education. What's lacking there is exactly accountability, reciprocity, and knowledge. We, we, are, we are less knowledgeable about how to improve education because we, we don't have the experimentation of consent. Um, there's a less accountability because you have to go to who you have to go to, the public school system. And uh, there's less reciprocity because they don't oftentimes provide you as good an education as there is because there's no accountability. Oftentimes, you don't lose your job if you do a bad job. And um, so without those mechanisms that would happen in the consensual, in the consensual realm, uh, in the self-ownership realm, uh, society begins to fall apart. And so we're, we, that's what we want as a, as a libertarian. I agree with you. And I also think that there's a vast majority of people who, especially we'll see them on social media. So there is, there, there mm-hmm. is this X factor that social media seems to bring out the anonymous idiot in all of us or the anonymous aggressor or whatever. But it's, just, it, we're, it's, it's not a true reflection of who we are, certainly not in those mm-hmm. arguments. So when you mention teacher pay, <laughs> you're not going to get milquetoast responses. You're going to get very polarized answers and comments and probably some adult language uh, in mm-hmm. response to whatever your position is on teacher pay. So in almost all of those kinds of cases, when the statement is the reason this institution is bad at doing its job is there's too much government, more than enough of those people are going to respond, well, that's completely false. What we need is more government. So (laughs) the million-dollar question to me is, how do we reach that crowd and illuminate the point that government is the problem without getting into that hackneyed, taxationist theft kind of a response? I think there's a way to do it. I'm not clever enough to figure that out. Well, I would refra- what I would do in that particular instance is I would reframe the question. Is the, if you ask the question more or less government, there's going to be sort of that sort of knee-jerk response because people have this image of all the imaginary good things they have government's going to do because they're imagining, they're, they're imagining a policy being executed by the ideal people in the ideal way, not the actual people who are doing the policy in the actual way that they're doing it. So if you push against that too much, you might lose them. But if you ask this a different question, is there a better solution? And how can you discover that better solution? You might get them to, you, you reframe the conversation. So instead of saying, hey, we need less government here, I, I might reframe saying, hey, you know, there might be more solutions if we allow more people to try things out. And then instead of focusing on the government side, focusing on enabling people, and then maybe later on in that conversation, they become more open to the look thinking about how government prevents that enabling of people to do, to create more solutions. So I'm not saying, hey, this is the worst solution in the world. I'm saying there might be better solutions. And hey, let's talk about what's preventing from those better solutions from being discovered or happening. And sometimes that at least shifts the conversation to a different note, because it's not a more or less government argument is how do we find solutions type argument. And that can lead people to more saying, yeah, maybe we should let more people try more things. And that kind of pushes people in the same direction at the end of the day. It's an interesting answer. And I'm, I'm contemplating a 
possible scenario, and and I think there is a sub. I don't. I don't. I don't. I can't measure the quantity. A substantial pushback against ideas that are foreign from the sort of three by five part of allowable opinion to borrow somebody else's phrase. And but it's mm-hmm. it's not just them. Anybody who is challenged in their way of thinking about a thing doesn't matter if you're a painter, a woodcover, or a chef. If you're told here's a new way to look at this problem. I, I think the first reasonable re- response is to balk a little bit at this at this new idea. Mm-hmm. So that's I, I see that that is, and perhaps there's some sort of personal self preservation, self defense thing going on, and and that's okay. That's not an unreasonable reaction when you when when you refuse to let go of this other idea in favor of what might be a new one. Well, then that's another problem. So I. The restating the question is is a good idea, and it reminds me a little bit of um, Chris Voss's negotiating book, where you just turn things. Learn, you know, this is not a natural thing. Learning to hear a question and think about a way to rephrase that, at least speaking for mm-hmm. myself, that's a learned skill. That's just not something I think most people naturally do. Uh, no, I 100% agree with that. It definitely, it took me a long time to get over the idea of having to convince people of my of my view before I can present them my solution. Because oftentimes when we present people with, oh, here's what we should do, the first thing we want to do is tell them everything that's wrong with the way things are now. Problem is, the first thing you're doing is attacking everything that they think is true, and that puts them in this defensive posture when I could have just started with the solution before making them defensive, right. in a sense. That's a good plan. Uh, when I started getting into this libertarian, I, I don't like the phrase libertarian movement, but we don't really have anything work. And it's, <laughs> this isn't the show to hammer one out. And getting into all the names, Rothbard and Mises and Higgs and Hop, and I became uh, clear that some knowledge of economics was really useful to understanding libertarianism and really to sort of understanding the world even without politics. Uh, Tell us what that means to, well, let me back up a little bit. So part of that learning was learning to think like an economist. So tell us what it means to think like an economist, which I think you've sort of demonstrated, and how asking the compared to what kind of a question can open up what we were just talking about, that person's view to accommodate this new idea. I think what makes Economic thinking, uh, you know, different than other types of thinking is mainly thinking and trade-offs. So basically constantly assessing what do I give up and what do I get for any particular action that I take. So in the, in, if I were to apply that to rhetoric or apply that to advocacy, I mean, in the sense that if I sit there and I focus on, okay, I'm going to attack the status quo first before I present a solution, what am I benefiting from that versus what am I, uh, so in the sense, the cost is, Hey, I've now put this person in a defensive position. The benefit, well, mostly it's a, we just feel good getting our ideas out there. Uh, while versus, you know, if I sit there and I think about the, the cost benefit of starting with the solution first, once people, you know, I one I, I bypass that. So I just the idea of just thinking of things more transactionally. Um, but I don't think the libertarian intuition is so. I think it's heavily benefited from economic thinking. Um, but I do think there's a lot of elements that really kind of hit sort of peak libertarianism in the sense of 
you know, there's an appreciation of sort of historical trends. Um, there's, it's, it's a much more sort of philosophical, even, even in economics, it's a much more sort of philosophical approach versus a lot of the sort of the quantitative, uh, overly empirical and aggregated approach that sometimes often exists outside of libertarianism, where you're taking a look at large aggregates and whatnot, and just taking a look at things at face value instead of having this sort of historical, economic, philosophical, cultural framework by which lens look through things that help actually like process the why people act the way they do. And that's the fundamental process. That's, I think, what it comes down to. There's like a huge thoughtfulness in being libertarian about why do people do what they do? Human action, which is why Austrian economics always appealed to me so much because of that fundamental appreciation, that fundamental focus on human motivation and action. And that, when you focus on that, it totally changes how you look at a lot of different things. Because when someone says, ooh, this corporation did this, I'm no longer thinking, oh, this, this corporation. I'm thinking, okay, well, who was the CEO? Why did the CEO do it? What were his incentives? Who were the people around him's incentives? Um, you know, you, you break it down to smaller bricks, which tell you a very different story when you look at things as just big blocks, which is what we naturally intuit to do. But it does require, even though the libertarian idea at its basic idea of just, you know, don't hurt people, don't take their stuff seems so intuitive and so obvious, the actual thoughtfulness that's required to apply it in many places does require a lot of study, a lot of uh, basically going down the rabbit hole. And two, it's very hard for people to go down the rabbit hole because oftentimes people are hurt. You know, one of the things that really prevents people from trusting other people or or trusting the idea of individual liberties, the fact that bad things have happened to them in life. And they think, well, you know what? Bad things have happened to me, so I need something to prevent it from ever happening again. So they start thinking about government. This is why I emphasize so much um, in a lot of my, my, my recent writing and speaking, the idea of the liberty, the liberty movement as um, a mechanism for healing. I mean, the liberty movement creates this kind of community. And I mean, you know, a lot of libertarians get to know each other very well. We build relationships with each other. We build this community that really kind of takes care of each other. And not only is that community an example of libertarian ideas in action, that sort of voluntary aid, that, that you know, community as a source of community through individualism uh, as an example, but it's also a mechanism for healing. Because as we build relationships with each other, we, 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 we show that reciprocity and that accountability and voluntary relationships, we begin, people who get involved, even if they're not all the way libertarian, and everyone gets too worried about how libertarian someone is, but even if they're just a little bit libertarian, once they get involved in the movement, being in the movement will, and having those positive interactions will heal them, heal them from their past pain and suffering to the point where they, they can embrace those ideas more wholly and fruitfully. So to me, it's like the, not just the logic, the, the knowledge that, re, that is required to understand libertarian ideas, but also the, the emotional place you need to be to really kind of uh, embrace them in, in full throttle, I think is important as well. Alex, let's take a moment out for a word from one of my affiliates. Sometimes the best thing to do when a project has gone bad is stop, clear off the counter, and start again. That might mean literally throwing everything away, but not always. Sometimes what is needed is just to, as Vizzini told Inigo, go back to the beginning. The beginning is with my affiliate, Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. When you subscribe, you have access to over 20 courses ranging from logic and economics to Western civilization and political history and even courses on libertarianism and science fiction 
and of course about Laura Ingalls Wilder from Little House on the Prairie. Click over to Liberty Classroom with my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash bite back and bite back against the failed education from the state. culinarylibertarian.com slash bite back. That's culinarylibertarian.com slash bite back. Now, let's get back to Alex. You said something, and I'm curious. Do you think it's easier for this is one of those dumb questions. It's just <laughs> asking. Is it easier just to see government failure as tolerable, since there's no face to the pain, whereas if we were much closer to an anarchy situation than we are, and Frank was the one that caused my pain. Well, I can put a. I can. I can identify Frank. Frank is the source of my pain. I'm angry at Frank. When the government makes a big blunder. Well, you know, okay, well, I don't like the president, so it must be his fault, or I don't like my congressman. That, that, that removedness, which is a crappy phrase, is, is an insulation from being able to point at anybody and, and accuse them of, and, and say, you, you wronged me. Well, since said, so now I have this, I have this pain. This nameless, faceless entity called government caused it, and there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. Um, I do think there's is people have a different way of looking at not just government, but the way when organizations do them wrong versus when individuals do them wrong. Um, and you know, so what happens is that when they, um, I mean, part of it is just the way sort of there's this sort of difference, cultural difference when we look at government versus when we look at at uh, business nowadays. That basically we become more accustomed to kind of attributing sort of an optimistic, a veneer of optimism to looking at governments. So we always kind of assume that people who are in government are just a little bit more benevolent, that their actions and practice, because most people aren't looking at what government actually does. They're looking at what they, they're imagining what they are told government does. So when they hear the minimum wage, they're not, they're offended because you've challenged the actual implementation and the actual results of the policy, but the idea of what they think the policy is doing. So, because they have this veneer, this sort of automatic optimism, business kind of uh, business and enterprise over time has kind of ended up with this sort of automatic opposite, um, where there's this automatic pessimism regarding business because people are doing it based on individual motivation. They assume that individual motivation is somehow contrary to community. And I just this is where I think the big disconnect intellectually is: people think that they don't see the overlap between individual interests and community interests. Um, so, what happens is that when they see a business they automatically assume some sort of pessimism that they are working against me. So even when a lot of times you take a look at actual results of many businesses practices are really good and created proliferation of all sorts of new innovative goods and quality of life, um, created new opportunities for people. They're, they're going to hyper-focus on the things that are bad and imagining things are worse than they actually are. Like, which I always notice, especially in conversations around Uber and Airbnb, where people really hyper-focus on like, one or two instances of things that are not even really bad, but they just want to frame it as bad because they just have that instinct, that sort of veneer pessimism on business and enterprise, um, which is, I don't know if it's always been that way. Although when I take a look at the literature of a lot of the debates over time, it just always has, see, that doesn't seem like it's necessarily new or uh, or novel. It just seems like that's sort of been a, a people automatically assume pessimism in transactions that are, are material. Um, without 
really understanding how the incentives, because of the material exchanges, actually aligns the interests of, of, of individuals and communities. But that's it's it's not intuitive. Um, yeah, and that's where you know libertarian advocacy becomes really important, and that's why I think the consent message and the consent framing is really important. Because once you can see how a consensual relationship between two people is, you know, brings you that reciprocity, like the romantic relationship, I think is once people see the dynamics of that, being like, oh, I get to choose who I'm dating, and they're only there because I'm being a good partner and vice versa, and I have the ability to hold them accountable by saying, hey, I'm going to leave. And, you know, as I've gone through more relationships, I've known better what I want, so I can find an even better relationship. Um, once you kind of see that, it's like, that's no different than the interactions I have with businesses and whatnot. And once you see that those interactions all operate along the same line, it's much easier to see that individual interactions or individual material exchange does actually align up with community and individual and community interests, not the, not the opposite, which is what people typically into, into it, which is for a variety of reasons. You made an interesting statement. The romance, well, I'm going to paraphrase it, the romance of benevolence. Mm -hmm. And there is a discord between the romance of benevolence and the economic implications of that benevolence. And generally there is, as we see that now practiced, certainly as the 2020 election cycle is just every day, it doesn't seem like it could get more and somehow it does, but you know, it's, it's the, proverbial urinating contest of who can give away more of something that doesn't belong to them. And we feel good. Well, that's what government's there for. So steal my money and give it to somebody mm -hmm. else. And, and so I, I, I can recognize, I'm not that out of tune that I don't recognize that that does sound nice, that the people who need are going to get. What's, what's missed First of all, is that eighty percent of what's what's taken goes to people driving a desk or the talking face on the TV, you know, Bernie or whatever her name, AOC or somebody, somebody who isn't the intended final recipient is getting the lion's share of that money. So twenty percent goes to the intended target, and then who knows how much bureaucracy is involved in that? But that's another well, show. Um, but but oh, um, the only thing I want to say about that is that. You know, we, we generally assume that people who vote for more government and are, are, are these, like, progressive types who, you know, they're, they're imagining that I'm going to use government for good things. I'm going to be, I'm going to, you know, take from the rich and give to the poor. But you know what? I would venture that I would say probably the vast majority of people who vote for bigger government are, are, are not even in that camp. They're people who do recognize that government takes, but they don't believe that it'll ever stop taking. So then they've come to this mindset where basically there's this big pot of money and big pot of power the government controls. And if somebody else, if I don't take mines, somebody else will. So it becomes sort of this, you know, uh, tragedy of the commons kind of thing where basically everyone's rushing to get their, it's like an all-you-can-eat buffet. Everyone's thinking, okay, well, if I don't grab, you know, an extra heaping of, of you know, barbecue barbecue pork, then it's not going to be there later on. So everyone's rushing to get there. Most people go for it being like, yeah, I get your ideals, but you're a this is the same thing they'll say to a progressive libertarian. It's like, I get your ideals. What's more important, you know what? It's very Your ideals are very unlikely. So right now I'm just going to, in the short run, I'm just going to try to get as much as I can. And that's why all these programs that progressives promote, oftentimes, you know, they, they sound nice on paper, but the people who, who end up implementing, the people who end up voting for them are really people who really more care about, okay, what's in it for me now? 
and you end up getting the worst of all world every time government grows in power. But at the same time, it's really hard to, sh to shrink that power for the same reason. So every time you have a new policy, it's implemented in the worst way possible, and it's hard to get rid of that policy because of the same people who ruin, who made the worst version of that policy possible in the first place. You know, as we've been talking, it occurs to me that libertarians as a group are kind of like the smart kid in the back of the room who knows all the answers and is smug about that. So most libertarians are well-read, well and in generally it seems pretty unconventional topics, <laughs> which would include economics. Um, what seems most needed is a good marketer. You know, the what I think we're missing is... And, and it's funny to say, you know, in the Woods group that we, we need a good marketer, but we, we don't seem to have a really great brand. And I think we had that. I missed that chance, but I think that was Ron Paul. Uh, but, you know, between the infighting and the left and the right and the thick and the thin, it's hardly a wonder that we don't get any traction or acceptance. So putting aside internal ideological differences, the question that I think I've been dancing around is, how do we present libertarian ideas as sound and not appear like Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters? Now, I mean, I don't think it's, I mean, the, of course the infighting annoys me as much as it annoys everybody else. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a natural, it's, it's natural for any organization where you can have subgroups. And the thing is that the fact that the libertarian movement, not just the libertarian party, but the libertarian movement as a whole has grown so much that the individual groups inside of it have gotten big enough that there's room for them to have fights is a sign of our growth, to be fair. But, I mean, there has been a concerted effort to tarnish our brand from the left and the right. Not left by libertarians, but people who are, sort of, you know, left and right, um, I would say, liberal left and right, those who are, are for more bigger government on the left and the right, in characterizing us as either libertines when the right criticizes us, or as, you know, part, are, as heartless you know, as heartless businessmen uh, as, as the uh, the left would characterize us, and it's it's a, it's comes a lot from their their mainstream outlets. It's, the the media has not been friendly towards the libertarian brand uh, once it started getting traction. Um, I remember seeing many sort of racial matter pieces where they literally spent the whole hour just basically talking about how how even, like basically really really making a libertarian sound wacky, either basically because. They're related to the Cokes, and the, and the Cokes have money, or basically because they, you know, they don't toe the line on, on, on certain legislation of the past, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there, you have the entire apparatus that supports the powers that be, definitely not wanting the libertarian brand to be a brand that catches fire. They don't want this. They don't want the idea that hey, you know, uh, maybe there should be less power and there should be less centralized. Maybe we should diffuse it. They don't want that catching hold, and that that's very apparent. Um, within the institutions that maintain that power. Uh, so I'm not surprised uh, at that effort that's existed as at, in that moment where it looked like libertarianism was going to sort of really kind of hit some momentum. And I don't, and I expect that if we ever hit momentum again, which we are, we still have momentum. Uh, we are still growing. And again, a lot of our internal struggles are a sign of that growth. Um, I don't expect that they're going to continue to push back. But we, but that's one of the benefits of the liberty movement as a whole and the Libertarian Party. I think it's, I think of them as a free market. It's a free market for libertarian activism. We, you know, there's no one who controls what the message is. There's no one who controls what the right way to do things is. And we're not a very top-down movement. And I think that's a good thing. That's the reason why we have continued to grow. Why we just haven't disappeared as much as they tried to squash us. There's no head to squash. There's no, um, 
you know, if someone's some one person's approach stops working, then someone else will probably have an approach that does work. And while that can seem chaotic, that can seem frustrating at times, it's the reason why, you know, we've been growing at a, not as fast as everyone would like, but we've continued to grow despite whatever the environment is. Because we are, we literally are a microcosm of the world we want to create, a world that's constantly experimenting and discovering. Um, so I'm, I'm very optimistic about libertarianism in the long run. But I think what I, where I'm less optimistic is sort of what people should expect from liber- libertarian action in politics. While I'm heavily involved in the political side of the, liberta- of the libertarian movement, generally my expectation of what can be accomplished on the political end is, is essentially kind of uh, more of a stalemate, more of you know, holding back government from growing or at least slowing down that growth of government. Uh, where you're going to start seeing the shrinking, where you're going to start seeing the reductions is when you create, when you reduce the actual demand for government. And the only way you can reduce the demand for government is by creating a viable alternative, whether it's through a charity, through a business, through some sort of, like Bitcoin's a great example, where, or cryptocurrency in general, where, where it does provide a potential alternative to government-run money. Um, now, does that mean that that alternative is going to be something that everyone adopts tomorrow? No. But as, as the monopoly of government-run money gets worse, not just worse than what the money is worth, but the way it's implemented, the way it's tracked, um, all, all these different aspects of what money and economic transactions provide in today's world, um, it, that alternative, and as that, that as Bitcoin develops and other cryptocurrencies develop, that alternative will begin to look better and better and better and provides like a life raft away from asking for more government and whatnot. And I think more focusing, you know, Making sure that that can continue to happen is, I think, the most important part of libertarian political action. Being involved in politics so that way we can make sure that, you know, the people who are doing, creating the Bitcoins, who are creating the, the C-steads, who are creating that, there's no one getting in their way. So that way, those alternatives can arise and exist and reduce the demand for the state until there is no demand for the state because there is something to replace it. There is, there is something that's decentralized, that is market-based that so satisfies the demands that society is currently placing on the state. We're not going to be able to just sit there and say, hey, you know, you guys just need to go without the satisfaction of your current demands, but you can give them a more market-based alternative for it. That's a good approach. I want to bring it back a little bit more. Uh, one of the things that I've been focusing on in this podcast is a little bit more awareness in things like farming and the astonishing amount of regulations in farming both from the USDA and the FDA. And I think that if if just general average Joe consumer had any idea how hard it was for that food to get to his store onto his plate, there might be a bit of surprise there. And I think one of the ways people can also work toward creating less demand for government is by getting more involved, not even in a political race, but in the regulation side. Uh, I, I think probably it's fairly well known, although maybe not to the magnitude, and I don't even think that I know that, of what the uh, prescription medicine, mm-hmm. and I can't remember, uh, the, yeah, the FDA and, and, and more, but there's uh, how, so that's the other question, how how does this insulated agency feel pressure from consumers? How do we do that? I mean, basically, I mean, what's happened with the FDA, I think, is, is a good example where you have this sort of right to try movement, because basically you have people who are actually dying. It becomes, 
it's no longer an economic story. It's, 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 it's a human story. And I think human stories connect with people when they hear stories of people who are dying because they can't get, um, they can't get a drug because it's going through the FDA process that could help them that later on turns out would have helped them. And those kind of stories. And I, this is where I like, like, um, I think uh, Mary Ruhr just recently came out with a book regarding the FDA, which I highly recommend people read, uh, that goes into all that. And the same thing with the USDA. I think the USDA is a very underappreciated agency in this regard, in the sense where, to, to my understanding, literally, if a handful of farmers, a particular crop, or basically, let's say you have five cherry farmers, and one really big one and four small ones, but if the small, small four ones agree to cartelize, then all five of them are now obligated to to have to undergo all sorts of different regulations, even though it's technically something that they agree upon theoretically, it, it's, you're basically allowing, um, you, you create this mechanism for farmers to kind of bludgeon each other, which often happens like, again, those four small farms will then say, Hey, you know what? The big farm can only make this many cherries can only, you know, sell them at this price can only do this, which then, you know, they'll argue like, well, that makes it easier for us to make money, but then you end up, that means I have to spend more on cherries, which means I have less income to spend on other things. Um, which means that farm that means there's now maybe more cherry farmers than we necessarily need, and less farmers for some other crop that I need because basically you don't have the market prices setting incentives for which farmers are needed for which crops, um, which just basically impoverishes us all in the long run. And that's just one small example of how how the USDA gets involved in everything, and that affects what food we eat because the prices of food affect what what we choose to buy and ingredients we use in our meals which also is going to affect our health outcomes which is going to affect healthcare. i mean it, it, it all one misallocation because of one government intervention creates all sorts of new mis- misallocations which then creates calls for other government interventions just one big uh, mess so yeah no the usda is something i think people should talk more about um the fda again was able to get that scrutiny because we were able to turn it into a human story when i think nowadays people are talking a little more about like things like food deserts and healthy diets and whatnot, I think now there's a better time than ever to create that human story when discussing USDA regulation and discussing how it can cause certain things to be a lot of healthy foods being more expensive than they really need to be. And sometimes unhealthy foods make them cheaper than they need to be or or basically just create weird distortions on how things are priced in the food market. Well, yeah, and I have looked into some of this and it's phenomenally complicated. And I'm, I'm reading a book by a fellow who I hope to speak to and maybe sort of unwind all of this for me. But there's the, I, 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 it's the, the monopoly of the government is on some level making the, well, so this is the first thing. What's healthy? What isn't healthy? Well, there's a, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Nina Teichel's whole 10-year research book is about that. And I know she has her detractors, but there's, a lot of information coming out that has been suppressed, probably on purpose, about what is a good, sound eating regimen and what is not. And that, and I've done some episodes on that, and I've been on some other podcasts about that. And quite frankly, it becomes really, really confusing because how do you know who to trust? And if it's something as fundamental as the food you put in your body, and you found out that you've been misinformed for all of your life and your parents' life and maybe your grandparents' life. Wow, now that's a big deal. And it's it's hard to know. It's hard to advise. It's not my job to advise. It's hard to know what to do with that information. If everything I've read about eating 
red meats in minimum, turns out that that's not true, and I'm pretty sure that that's not true, that go ahead and eat lots of meat because it's not the fat that doesn't make you fat, it's other things. Well, the fact that they're still involved in things so important like food and medicine, and it, it gets it gets complicated fast. Mm-hmm. It gets sticky quickly. You know, do we need somebody who knows more than I do about medicine saying this medicine's good, this medicine's bad? You know what? Maybe on some level we do need some agency. I'm not saying the government agency. Mm-hmm. If we were to take the Walter Block argument, we'd have an insurance company yep. that knows the most about these things. Well, I don't know the most about that, but I'd like to know somebody who does and give me information that I can use to make an informed decision yeah. and not be told out of the gate this is excluded from you. And I think that's what the cannabis fight's doing right now. Yep, and that's technically how things have worked in the past. I mean, for example, no one is an expert in, you know, what airline does what and what hotel has the best price. So you'd hire a travel agent. I mean, generally that's how it would work for many and it still does for many transactions in our life, but we're not experts. We hire an expert and because we pay them, they have an interest in making sure they do a good job for us because they want to Get, not just get the commission from that one transaction, but be referred for future business. So they have an incentive in doing the best they can for us. People always think, oh, no, but they have an incentive to try to get a little bit more money out of you, but then they're not going to get your referral. Any good salesperson is really trying to take care of you because that's how you build a practice. That's how you build a good reputation that's going to lead to getting more business. Um, problem is when, when you have a government decide, okay, we're going to be the sole arbiter for what works and what doesn't work. We're going to decide what in, we're going to be the arbiter that says, okay, this is the information that's credible, not credible. What happens is that you've just interjected politics into the process of what is credible and not credible, which means you're going to have people who are going to influence politics, influence elections, influence uh, government institutions because it's kind of outside of the market process, and they're going to try to influence it to to their ends, and and that's where cronyism always gets in power. So, you know, to this extent that any information that government puts out there or controls, especially if it's tied to a policy, especially if if like for example, in healthcare, where basically certain standards and practices that the government decides are going to determine, okay, well, doctors are going to recommend this because since the government says this is the okay recommendation in this situation, I'm less likely to get sued. You know, that makes what medicines the government sort of sanctions and doesn't sanction a, a now a political thing that has an economic reward if you can influence it, which creates an incentive to influence it. So government power, government control, and government centralization of certain decision-making and certain enabling it's going to naturally kind of create these, these dynamics, and which is why we just don't want, them, or at least I don't, as a libertarian. Right. And I think that even though you made a point that it isn't we hate the government, in some level that, well, hate's a powerful word, but it certainly gets gets attention. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that we want substantially less government. To, yeah. and, and I think there's so Michael Bolden at the Tenth Amendment Center is is pretty stern on the Constitution that the government we want is the government that we ratified for. And with all just these, what, 12 or 13 or whatever enumerated powers, and that's it. And everything else goes to the states. And, and that's it's probably another show to have that conversation, but it's not an unrealistic expectation to want that. I think the, uh, calling me pessimistic, but to expect government to surrender its power because we ask nicely is probably pretty silly. It's going to be difficult. I mean, b- bottom line is government power is the result 
of what society demands to be done and in the time frame they demand to have it done. So to the extent you can influence society, not just what they want. So the idea is like, it's not that they just want free health. It's not that they want health care. It's that they want health care now that they can afford. So when someone says free health care now, that's more appealing. I mean, you know, I can make the argument that, hey, in a free market, you're going to have a bunch of different uh, health care providers. They're going to compete. They're going to find the best ways. And eventually you're going to have a consolidation of the market, which is going to be pretty close to pretty much universal health care at an affordable price over time because that's how the market process works. They're going to be like, well, that's not now. So in that case, if you, you want to change that world, and there's an intent to do it. If you can be the person who can figure out how as a business to work around the current existing barriers um, to create a affordable healthcare alternative, there's a huge pot of gold there. Um, but the idea is to go exploit that. Now, it's, the problem is there's so many bad rules that make that discovering that pot of gold near impossible. Um, but it's trying to find those little places where we can create those, where there is still enough freedom to create those alternatives that are like, okay, this satisfies what society wants now, and it's outside of government. And again, it's through a, a, a voluntary provider that they can say, hey, I, if they ever get out of whack, I can be like, no, I'm not going to you anymore. Um, we just need to figure out how to kind of create those alternatives, basically compete with government where government is. This is kind of like, this is kind of the, the flip side of what progressives want. Progressives want government to compete with business. This is like the whole idea of a public choice. They want government to compete with business where business rules. The libertarian argument is actually the exact opposite. We want to have a private choice in as many places as possible where the government sort of monopolizes. I think that that's a, uh, probably the, the best quick sum up of the difference between progressives and, well, maybe, maybe everybody else. I, I think it's easy for a lot of people to misunderstand or miss or just not see that the basis of going to the grocery store or choosing the gas station on this corner, not the gas station on that corner, or buying that brand of shoes, not the other brand of shoes. Every one of these exchanges is a voluntary choice exchange that that person chose for whoever, who knows what the reasons are, but they made the choice. They voluntarily gave away their cash or their digits and got a thing in return. And I think back to the simplicity of don't hurt people and don't take the stuff, the ability to go and just transact peacefully. I want to, I just want to buy your stuff. Give me your stuff. Take my money. And I think most people get that. And somehow, and, and if I guess this is, this is really the crux of the whole matter, somewhere from this simple third grade, playground, don't hurt me, don't take my stuff, and let me, you know, we'll just do free trade, it got really out of whack. And how do we, I'm going to mix metaphors, how do we put that genie back in the bottle is, I guess that's the question all of us are trying to answer. Yeah, I mean, the way, yeah, the way I look at it, and it, it is a tough question to answer, is, is I don't know if you can put the genie back in the bottle, but if you think of it like a fire, how do you, how do you, put out the fire, sometimes the best way to put out a fire is just not to give it any more oxygen. And that's, I think, what libertarians need to focus on. Less smothering out the fire than figuring out how can we stop it from having oxygen. And that's, to me, like sort of the focusing on market alternative approach and then focusing politically on making sure that there's nothing, there's no barriers to creating uh, market options or market alternatives to government. Well, good. I, that's you know, a little bit on the upbeat I was looking for because I felt like we were, <laughs> I felt like we were getting into the into the into one of those rabbit holes we just talked about. So, so yes. So you know, making so making the making choices that we want to make without 
Well, see, the problem is that there's coercion all along the lines that we don't see. Right. Again, that's that's another show. That's another topic. But slowly depriving oxygen to the beast, at some point, all of that will slowly go away. Alex, how can people find you? How can people follow you on your YouTube? And do you have a web page or other things you want to share? Oh, I have all sorts of things. Now, if you go to alexmerced.com, you can find generally everything. I do highly recommend that people subscribe to my podcast, the Alex Merced cast. That's the one I do on libertarianism and politics. I do have other podcasts on other topics, such as marketing and branding, podcasting, uh, self-development, uh, all sorts of great content. So if you go to alexmerced.com, it kind of takes you to all of it. Like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, follow me on Instagram. I'm constantly putting out a lot of unique content on all these channels. So if you don't subscribe to all of them, you're definitely missing out on something here and there. But um, I'm constantly trying to put out content that educates and kind of helps reframe a lot of these ideas, tries out, shows different framing, so that way people can always kind of find new ways to discuss these things or look at them from angles they haven't looked at them before, so that way they can improve their engagement with others. Very good. Well, one of the things that I've found interesting in libertarian thinking, which is probably part of the economics part, is which is reframing the question. And so one of the, and and I like the way that you do that. And I find your reframing and your explanations very satisfactory because I'm 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 still a little weeny at the one or two level on, on the scale of learning. So uh, I find that helpful and, and I appreciate that. I'm going to put the links, or at least uh, definitely the alexmerced.com link on the show notes page for today, which will be culinarylibertarian.com slash 43. And, and then they can go and find everything else. And we talked about a couple of books, and I'll put some links up for that as well. Uh, anything else you want to add before we take off? If you ever have a friend who you want to point towards sort of, you know, what are the basics of libertarianism, I did create a website for that, libertarian101.com which includes a recommended reading list, a podcast list, all sorts of resources for anyone who's looking to just kind of immerse themselves in libertarianism. So I highly recommend people go check that out. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you very much. Well, excellent. I will also put a link for that on the show notes page. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. I know we had some uh, hiccups, but uh, that's, you know, New York will do that to you. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that's going to do it. The links to Alex's social media and websites will be on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 43. I'm also going to add a link to a page of articles economist Robert Wenzel compiled, which will be at culinarylibertarian.com slash think. There are 30 articles, one a day for a month, to learn about how to think like a libertarian. It, too, is a good place to start to learn about some of those alternative solutions Alex was mentioning. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.